Well, today we're continuing a message series entitled, This Is Us. And, uh, and by the way, you might have noticed I also have on like a number of, of people uh, a shirt to celebrate Feed the Hungry, which is going to be taking place this afternoon. I want everybody to know I've been told this is a coral t-shirt, okay? This is not pink, okay? Even though some of you might think it's coral, okay? So I just want to make sure that's, that's clear. But, uh, but you will get one of these cool coral shirts as well uh, by Feeding the Hungry, and we still have some slots open, and we hope you'll be a part of that, and that'll be next door at the YMCA uh, this afternoon. But as we continue this series of messages entitled, This Is Us, we're tackling the topic today of making peace, making peace with others. You know, we as human beings struggle with keeping peace and making peace. We see this both at a personal, but also at a national level. Considering this subject, I I researched for this weekend our country's history and discovered that yes, peace is truly an elusive reality. Of the 243 years that the United States has been a nation, or almost 243 years, this coming July, how many years do you think we as a nation have experienced an entire year at being at peace? No war, no conflict. How much of that time do you think in our history as a nation we've experienced what could be called peace? Well, I researched it, and the nerd I am, I even printed out all the years, okay? And I'm curious, do you think it's half of those years we've had peace? Do you think it's a a fourth of those years? Do you think it's a fourth? How many think it's less? How many think it's a fifth? Okay, some of you think it's a less. Okay, I found out that the number of years in our history as a nation that there has been peace, no conflicts, no war, 21 years. That's 9% of our history. Now, I have to be honest, the part of those were the Cold War years that I grew up with and some of us grew up with. Okay, I guess all of us. Well, not all of us, okay, but the Cold War years. So, so, but there was tension, okay? So, in fact, uh, the, in my lifetime, you know, the 40, 50 years, you know, you fill in the blank, there's only been five years of peace in my entire lifetime. I went back and counted them. In fact, our history as a church that began in 1997, there's only been two. One of those years was the year we began as a church, 1997 and then 2000. In fact, I thought about that. For our high school seniors, they have never known life without our country being at war. You see, peace is an elusive thing. It's rare for us to experience as a nation. The same is true for us personally. How many of us have a strained relationship with another person as we sit here and think about our relationships today? How many of us have a broken relationship where we have to be honest, there's not peace? 
between us and that person? How many of us at least have a tense or fragile relationship where peace is very tentative? How many of us are experienced with a family member or somebody from our friend group or possibly even with someone in this church that there's an unresolved conflict, there's hurt feelings, possibly there's even an odds with that person to the point that we're no longer even talking with them. If this is true of you in the past or in the present, or if it'll be true of you in the future, which I hope it's not, but if it is, then I think we can all learn and find help and find direction of how we can seek peace for my Bible story this weekend. The Bible story we're gonna examine this morning is, is the telling of a 20 to 40 year conflict between two brothers who will eventually make peace, and yet not without learning a great deal along the way. Now, as we examine some of these notable relationships that are recorded in the Bible, in fact, this series, we're looking at some of those those uh, famous relationships are recorded in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We realize that some of these heroes of faith that we tend to put up on a pedestal are actually very human. They're very flawed human beings who struggle in life. They struggle with relationships, and we can learn a great deal from them. And because as we read their story, we realize that this is us, that they tell our story as well. In the Bible, we're introduced to one of these famous characters of faith, a guy named Jacob. We learn that even from birth, Jacob is born literally in a struggle with a, in a relationship with his older twin brother. We read in Genesis 25 that Jacob is born, and if you're taking notes, even named at birth, the deceiver. Now, Andrew, who preached last week, did a great job as he alluded to these twin brothers, Esau and Jacob. And we're not going to rehash the things he talked about last week. If you weren't here last week, you want to go back and listen to his message online. It was outstanding. But let's go back and look from even from the very beginning at their birth, we see with these two brothers, there was a real struggle going on. In Genesis 25 and verse 25, It talks about these two brothers. It says, the first one, which was Esau, was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. So they named him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. So what do we find? Even as we're introduced to this fascinating character, Jacob, he was born second, but he came out of the womb trying to grab the older brother's place. His name literally means, Jacob means heel grabber or supplanter, which is exactly what Jacob ends up trying to do, even taking at birth the place of his older brother. Andrew described last week that that Jacob, who, if some of your Bibles are like mine, down in the footnote, it'll even say his name means deceiver, ended up grabbing and blessing, excuse me, grabbing the blessing and birthright from his brother through deception. 
I've often wondered if grabbing the heel, as Jacob is called, is a Hebrew idiom, maybe similar to what we say in America, are you pulling my leg? I mean, throughout his life, it seems like he uses deception as a tool to get his way. Now, as a result of Jacob's deceptive schemes, not only did he end up as the son of the blessing and the birthright, but he also ended up as being the brother who was hated. As we keep reading, we're told in Genesis 27, from that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme, I will soon be mourning my father's death, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Wow. Esau says, I'm just waiting until dad dies, and then I'm going to kill him. Now, maybe it was a good thing that, that Isaac lived a long life, 180 years. It gave Esau time to change his attitude. Other Bible translations in in verse 41 says that Esau held a grudge toward his brother. Now we're getting down to the real nitty gritty of what destroys peace in relationships. It's when somebody's wronged us, when somebody has hurt us, and as a result of it, we end up holding a grudge. Is there someone in your life that you're holding a grudge toward? Now, maybe you don't plan to kill them, I hope not, like Esau planned to kill his brother, but nevertheless, if you have a grudge in your heart, it's gonna lead to real damage. It's gonna lead to damage in your relationship with that person, but it's also gonna lead to damage in your own life. And I think it's important that we make sure that we don't set up someone else to resent us or someone else to maybe hold a grudge toward us. For example, I want to make sure I don't do that in my relationship with all of you. And so because of that, I really want to play down the huge victory my alma mater had yesterday over a team from Ohio, because the last time I talked about that, I had someone tell me, no, they've heard of a poor loser, but I'm a poor winner. So it's just tough when your team's winning. But I I don't want you to resent me, the fact that my team's having a good year this year, okay? But I don't want you to resent me, but I don't want you to resent others either. It's important that we don't hold grudges against each other, and against those in our life. Because so often those grudges lead to resentment that end up not only hurting the relationship, but hurting us. Maybe you've heard of the saying, I've shared it before, but I really believe it's true. Resentment is the poison that you drink thinking that someone else will die. Have you drank that poison? Have you been drinking it lately? And is it eating you up on the inside? Well, after learning of this grudge that's being harbored in Esau's heart and his plan for murder, his parents step in and they send Jacob, their second son, away to stay with another relative. 
In Esau and Jacob's relationship, this grudge led to 20 years of alienation. They didn't speak. This was before email or telephone or telegraph. And so because of that, I mean, there's 20 years where these two brothers are alienated, twin brothers, and they didn't speak. How sad. You know, it's sad in families when you have two people that aren't speaking. It's sad when old friends no longer speak because of some offense, because of something that was done wrong. And I'm not trying to minimize that there was hurt and pain in that which was wrong, but, but then the grudge that carries on and the resentment that separates. And it leads to broken relationships. Now, I know there's cases where some person is completely in the innocent, completely in the right, and the other person has, has been completely in the wrong. I know those cases exist, and I'm not minimizing it. And yet what we can see in this story and what happens so often in life is that actually both parties contributed to the broken relationship. Jacob was deceptive in his spirit, and Esau was impulsive and, and then later re- regretted some of his impulsiveness and And it led to a grudge that separated. You see, sometimes we can focus more on the wrongs of the others, and we won't take time to look at maybe how we contributed to the problem as well. Yet as God so often does in life, the Lord sets the stage for Jacob to learn, to learn an important lesson. And as we'll learn from our next point, that God puts in Jacob's path someone that truly is his match in every way. So if you're taking notes, the second point is Jacob meets his match. If Jacob has a master's degree in deception, he's ready to meet somebody who's got a doctorate, okay? And that's how the story goes on. Now, I just want to make a point here, a point here is that sometimes I overhear Christians use phrases that I think, well, ugh. I'm not sure if that's a Christian perspective. I'll hear people use the word karma. You know, karma is not a biblical concept. I hear that thrown around a lot. But there is a biblical concept. The concept is that we do, the scriptures talk about that we reap what we sow. Well, Jacob's sown a lot of deception in his life. It leads to broken relationships. And he's about to reap some deception from someone else. And so let's read about how Jacob meets his match. He, he leaves the promised land. He goes up north to an area that today would be modern-day Syria, and he meets someone who's equally as deceptive and conniving, and that's his uncle Laban. Now, you can read about this fascinating uh, narrative in Genesis 29 through 31. We won't take time to read the whole narrative. Uh, my hope is on Sundays when we spend time together reading from God's Word and making application and illustration to our life, 
My hope is that it just kind of whets your appetite, that you're like, man, this is good stuff, and that it'll cause you to want to go home and read more and learn more and get into the Bible on a daily basis. So I want to encourage you, if you've not read this story before, go back and read Genesis 29 and 31. And yet, at the end of this section, we find that Jacob explains the extent of his uncle's deceptive tricks and bad treatment. And he challenges his uncle Laban with these words in Genesis 31, verse 40. He says, this was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night and sleep fled from my eyes. I was like this for 20 years. I was in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac had not intervened, been with me, you would surely have seen, sent me away empty-handed. And yet Jacob doesn't end up leaving his uncle empty-handed. Instead, he leaves after 20 years of terrible treatment a wealthy man. He's accumulated wives. Yes, I said wives, and we won't get into all that, but it's in the text, okay? And you can go back and read that. He, he leaves with children. He leaves with great possessions. At the end of G Genesis 31, Jacob leaves the region of modern-day Syria, and he travels back to the promised land, which is today occupied by the nation of Israel, which is interesting. Just kind of take a note of that. But along the way, Jacob, who's still deceptive in his nature, hatches this plan to return to his home country. You see, he realizes that he's going to see his brother after 20 years of being away from him. And he, last time he saw his brother, his brother was developing a scheme to kill him. And so Jacob comes up with this plan. He divides up his family. As I read the text, I think he divides it up into four groups. And he gives each group a gift. And he sends these groups out ahead of him so that they can, in a sense, start sending, uh, uh, bringing uh, uh, gifts to pacify his brother Esau, who is angry and hates him. And he's hoping that by the time he finally meets Esau face to face that Esau will soften a bit. And yet along the way, we see that God intervenes to help Jacob realize where the real problem lies. And we turn to this fascinating chapter in the Bible, Genesis 32. And we read about a defining moment in Jacob's life. And if you're taking notes, you can just write down Jacob Russell's with God. So let's read this passage. It's kind of long, but hang with me because it's, it's good stuff. And beginning in verse 24, it says, so Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. 
Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Wow. Now, as we read this passage, possibly you're like me and you have a number of questions. I do. I want to I just, I don't know, today maybe I'm just going to raise more questions than I give you answers, but maybe that's okay if that causes you to go back and have to wrestle with this text and to wrestle with what's said in it. Here's some of my questions. Who is this man that Jacob wrestles? Is it actually God and Jacob just thought it was a man? Or is it actually a man, possibly an ancient champion wrestler that God puts in the scene? I don't know. Is this an angel, a messenger of God? You know, the Bible says that Abraham entertained an angel unaware. Abraham was Jacob's grandfather. Or is it the pre-existent Christ that appears to Jacob approximately 1,800 years before he was born of Mary? Some believe that's who this man is, that Jacob's wrestling. I don't know what you think. Think about it. But obviously from this text, Jacob believes that this man, he has seen, in this man, he has seen God face to face. Yes, he wrestled with God and he eventually overcame. And yet in this wrestling match with God, God left Jacob forever changed. How was he changed? From that point on, he was given a new name. You see, Jacob, the deceiver, becomes one who wrestles with God, named Israel. Yes, Jacob is Israel. You see, the Israelites are descendants of Jacob. When you see in Scripture, or when you hear people say the children of Israel, they're saying the children of Jacob, the children of descendants. That's why sometimes in the Bible when you see In the Psalms, it says, O God of Jacob, it's the God of Israel. I think that's important for us to know. But not only was Jacob given this new name, Israel, you see, also, Jacob is given a limp. As a result of this wrestling match with God, Jacob is forever changed, and from this point on, he always has a limp to remind him that he met his true match. You see, sometimes it's not until we come to grips with our own human limitations, our human frailties, that we can begin to see our desperate need for God. This was definitely true in my life. You see, through my teen years, I was just too full of myself. It wasn't until I 
came to grips with the fact that I had some serious limitations and some serious weaknesses that I began to see my need for God. As I read of Jacob's life, I see this really sharp guy who's relied on his intellect, his cunningness, and even his deceptiveness to get ahead in life. And now, for the rest of his life, after this encounter with God, he has a new name and he has a limp to remind him of his human weakness, of his human limitation. Now, as I read this text this week, I I realized that it's in our weakness, it's in our personal struggles that we can see most clearly our desperate need for God and our need to depend upon God every single day. If you're like me, you're probably very aware of some of your flaws and your weaknesses and your limitations. Honestly, I find myself sometimes, after being a Christian for decades, saying, God, shouldn't I be over this by now? Shouldn't I have got beyond this? Shouldn't I be more patient? Shouldn't I be more pure? Shouldn't I not struggle with these motivations? Shouldn't I be more consistent? And you can just fill in the blank. And yet, as I wrestle with those areas that I seem to fall short in and and sometimes fall short in too often, I also recognize that in those weaknesses, I desperately see my need for God's spirit to change me to become more like Jesus. I recognize that I can't change myself and how much I need God to be at work in my life. Possibly, you and I need to quit resenting those weaknesses we see in our life. Instead, be grateful for them. Now, I'm not saying be satisfied. I'm not saying be complacent and not want to continue to grow and change. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying having a gratitude of saying, maybe it's because of this weakness, I'm gonna always see my desperate need to depend upon God. Maybe that was the reason why Jacob was given a limp for the remainder of his life. Yet the major observation that I want to leave you with this weekend is that before Jacob could make peace with his brother Esau, he first had to make peace with God. You see, I think why so many of us struggle with relationships with others is because underlying those interpersonal relationship struggles, there is a deeper struggle that we are having with our creator. You see, God created us to be in relationship with him. God created us to be at peace with him. And when we're not at peace with our creator, then we're going to struggle to be at peace with other people. God created us in love, but also he sent his son to create this bridge between us and himself so that we could be at peace with a holy God. And it's when we really discover peace with God, and until we find that peace with God, we're going to continue to struggle with relationships and having peace with others. And let's take our cues from God. God took the first step. He sent his son. Now the question 
First question is, have you responded to God's love? Hey, have you responded to God's initiation by sending his son? Have you responded to that gift? Have you acknowledged your sin and your brokenness without him? Have you humbly come to the point where you're willing to surrender your will to God's will, where you wave the white flag. I think that's what, what Jacob had to come to grips with when he was wrestling with God is that, hey, I, I'm gonna leave change. I'm not gonna really win here. So Jacob had to come to the point of surrender and I think that's where God wants each of us. And are we willing to say, God, I surrender and I'm willing to do it your way. God, I surrender and I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Do you want me to give this up in my life? I'll give it up. Do you want me to be baptized? I'll be baptized. Do you want me to to read my Bible? Do you want me to attend church? What is it you want me to do, God? I surrender. I just want to do your will. Have you come to that point of surrender in your life? You see, until we come to that, I don't think we can then in turn take the first step of seeking peace with others. See, sometimes it begins by simply asking God if he'll teach us the way, teach us how to reconcile that relationship and teach us, is it us that needs to take the first step? Is there anything in our heart or life that we need to examine that led to that broken relationship? Now, following this scene that Jacob wrestles with God, now he's ready to meet his brother. And in Genesis 33, we find that Jacob makes peace with God. One of the most tender, touching scenes in all the Bible. These two brothers who've been alienated for 20 years are reconciled. Let's read about it. Let's read a few verses in Genesis 33, beginning in verse 3. It says, then Jacob went on ahead. As he approached his brother, he bowed to the ground seven times before him. Do you see a broken heart, a changed spirit? Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. They both wept. What were all the flocks and herds I met as I came, Esau asked. Jacob replied, they are a gift, my Lord, to ensure your friendship. My brother, I have plenty, Esau answered. Keep what you have for yourself. But Jacob insisted, no, if I've found favor with you, please accept this gift from me. And what a relief to see your friendly smile. It's like seeing the face of God. I love that. You see, when we reconcile broken relationships, we can see God. We can see God smiling and see God at work. Now, I'm not sure if Esau had already forgiven him before the parade of gifts from different family members or if those gifts did soften his heart. I'm not sure. But I do think by his response that that Esau truly did forgive his brother. And that's what needed to happen before Jacob and Esau could have true peace with each other. If you're alienated from someone in your life, Instead of simply resenting them for their wrongs, are you willing to first look at your heart and your relationship with God? Are you willing to take this first step of trying to first make peace with God and then take a step of making peace toward that other person? And then are you willing to see God intervene and work? 
I think it's, if we're willing to take that courageous step, we too might see the face of God in the midst of that reconciliation. At the end of this chapter, there's a fascinating conclusion to this story that's, I think, really significant. Following this reconciliation, Jacob and his family settle in the promised land. And in Genesis 33, verse 19, we read, Jacob bought the plot of land where he camped. And there he built an altar. And he named it El, Elohi Israel. And you say, I don't speak Hebrew. Well, what does it mean, El, Elohi Israel? It means God, the God of Israel the God of Jacob. You see, this is a turning point in the Bible. Until this time, Jacob's been operating on borrowed faith. You see, up until this time, when when Jacob talks about God, he says, the God of Abraham, the God of my grandfather, the God of Isaac, my dad. But it wasn't a personal faith. It was a borrowed faith. I can relate to that because for years, I lived on my parents' faith. I lived on the faith of others in the church I grew up in. But it's an altogether different thing after you personally wrestle with God and you get to that point of surrender, then it's no longer their God. He's now my God. Have you come to that point where you've surrendered to God and he is your God? Have you had that wrestling match with God that you're willing to wave the white flag and say, I surrender God, here I am. I'll do what you call me to do. Sometimes in my life, I even have to say, God, help me want to do what you want me to do, to have that surrender. In the New Testament, we read over and over again that the good news of Jesus is called the gospel. The gospel is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, and the change that he can bring. But from time to time, some of the New Testament writers, like the Apostle Paul, they'll insert a different preposition before gospel and they'll say, my gospel. I don't think that means they're perverting it or changing it. It just means they've owned it. And in 2 Timothy 2 verse 8, Paul writes, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Has the gospel become your gospel? Has God become your God? Have you wrestled with him to the point that you say, I've surrendered to him, he's my God? Has the gospel transformed your life to the point where you say, it's my good news. I've embraced it. I've owned it as my own. Every week here at Southwest, we observe communion. And in just a moment, we're gonna pass the bread and we're gonna pass cups And these are reminders for us to remember the body and the blood of Jesus. To remind us that God took the first step to make peace with us. Let's allow this to be a time where we wrestle with God. Where we examine our hearts and ask ourselves, how have I responded to God's great effort to make peace with me? Do I really have peace with him? And then maybe as we're taking communion, reflecting on all that God did to make peace with us, it's a time for us to have some sober reflection 
Am I willing to make peace with others? Let's allow this to be a time where we worship our God and we proclaim the gospel is ours and we live it out as gospel people. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for these great stories of faith. Thank you for how these these characters of the Bible are so human. Father, they are us. Help us learn from them how they wrestled with you and with each other. Help us take to heart the lessons we can learn. Help us be like Jacob and surrender to you with every bit of our being and to be changed people. The Father's result of making peace with you, help us also make peace with others. Help us during this time of communion to just reflect on that and to have a holy moment with you. It's in Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.